Welcome to the Internet of Humans, a podcast about the humans behind one of our favorite things, the internet. I'm Jillian York. And I'm Konstantinos Komaitis. And today we're going to be talking with Maria Farrell, who is an Irish writer and speaker um, based normally, I think, in London, but we saw today that you're you're somewhere else in the world. We'll ask you about that. Um, she describes herself, and this is from her website, as a speaker and writer imagining a technological future we actively choose to live in, which is something I think that Constantinos and I would both say we strongly relate to. Absolutely. Hi, Maria. Um, hey. Welcome. So this, this podcast is a free-ranging conversation, and we're looking forward to going on a journey with you in the next hour or so. But we wanted to start by situating our listeners on the ongoing conversation around the Facebook papers released by whistleblower Francis Haugen. Uh, you've certainly been critical of the way the press and lawmakers have treated here thus far, particularly in contrast how they've treated another Facebook whistleblower, Sophie Zhang. Could you give our listeners some background on why you feel that way, that way? Why do you feel like the media has put so much focus on Haugen and before her Tristan Harris, whom you've called the prodigal uh, uh, tech bro? And we will talk a little bit about that more in detail later. Sure. Thank you both very much for having me on. So, okay, so I think the... the... Facebook whistleblower story sort of fits neatly into a lot of categories that we seem to already have populating our minds and our media and our set of expectations about who we listen to and who gets to speak and who gets to command the attention. And so I think Frances Haugen has kind of slipped quite neatly into kind of a pre-prepared expectation we have that, you know, white women, uh, white women with um important corporate positions in America, white middle-class women, white cis, het, straight women. I mean, I can keep kind of going on through the labels, but um, that there are certain people who command our attention. And partly, I think that's because of various cultural stories we tell ourselves about who is worth listening to and who gets to speak for everybody. Um, and also partly because, you know, Haugen has come up with hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, which were quite useful for a lot of people um, in telling them stuff about how Facebook works internally. So I think there are a couple of sort of, I suppose you could say objectively, she has brought, brought many, many documents and documentation of what we already suspected or knew into the public domain. And then there's the whole how people expect that this is the person we would listen to, as opposed to a Sophie Zhang, um, who's a trans woman who was kind of more very focused in, I think, her whistleblowing as regards Facebook. Facebook, or, you know, are women like um, Ifuma Ozoma or, or Asalia Banks or, you know, all sorts of women um, who and, and other people who have basically blown the whistle on tech practices. So I, I think there's kind of this idea that, yeah, the, the white girl boss feminist gets takes up a lot of space, not quite as much space as the, the, the prodigal tech bro, maybe, but an awful lot of space. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right to me. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really been bothering me here is somebody who has worked, I mean, you know, I'm obviously, I'm white, I'm American, I have all of this privilege as well, but I've worked alongside Global South um, based or rest of world based organizations and civil society for many years. And it feels to me like we're having kind of two separate conversations. One is related to some of the documents that Haugen put forth. And I want to give her credit for that. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in these papers about cultural competence and um, the lack thereof within Facebook slash meta, um, particularly when it comes to linguistic uh, issues around content moderation in various parts of the world. So to give an example for the listeners who may be less aware about this, um, one of the documents demonstrated that the content moderation being done in Arabic, a lot of it was happening in Morocco where, um, you know, fantastic country, I lived there, but um, let's just say the Arabic there is quite different from that that is spoken in other countries and therefore the content moderation ends up being less um, accurate, let's say, um, up to, I think, 90% inaccurate in Egypt, if I recall. And so it feels like we're kind of having these two separate conversations, one that's um, around the needs of people, users of this platform throughout the global south, and then another one that is really kind of where the focus um, from the media and in Haugen's Priet. Uh, PR tour has been around US and European legislation. Um, and so I'm curious kind of what your take is on that. Like, where do you see that divide? And, and how do you see us kind of coming together in the future? Oh, sure. So I mean, I think the Haugen PR tour, and I think that's a really good way to, to describe it, because, you know, she has had the resources of an incredibly powerful PR company. 
um, behind her and um, backing by, um, you know, organ- organizations like Piero Majora's um, Luminate um, Foundation. And so she has had tens and tens of thousands of dollars of PR, of, um, you know, personal support, of logistics, of, um, of access. You know, clearly she's, she's plumbed straight into a fairly elite level of the, the U.S. Democratic um, Party. So, you know, there are a lot of people there and they've got a way of thinking about the world and who counts, who's important and which, you know, conversations and to use their term, it's, it's important to be part of. So, you know, I think, yeah, her, the PR tour really um, replicates and amplifies a lot of the power inequalities about who's important. So the first place she went was, um, you know, the uh, U.S. congressional hearing in Washington. And, you know, a lot of the stuff she had to say there was... Uh, I mean, let's, let, none of it was a surprise to to any of the three of us on this podcast because these are issues and things that you know you, Gillian, have documented incredibly extensively, and so have other people um, in different ways. But um, I guess they were news to some of the people, you know, at that hearing. But I think what's really important, as well as the fact that she that you know the Hagen extravaganza sort of. Um, does replicate the idea of America is important, London also is important, Brussels is important, um, and then everybody else is, yeah, not really terribly important, and the laws that that happen in, in these kind of blocks are important. But I think also something something other really noticeable happens during that PR extravaganza, and that is that the, um, the types of solutions or approaches to the problems that Haugen identifies are incredibly narrow. So, you know, she goes to Congress and when asked about what do we do about this, um, the, the response is maybe do a bit more resources for moderation. Um, but God, don't go near competition or antitrust. You know, that's not going to help. You know, then she turns up in London in a hearing in Westminster for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, kind of their oversight committee. And um, all of the stuff she has to say about um, content moderation plays right into an incredibly urbanist government's um, uh, agenda on online harms and an incredibly damaging uh, piece of legislation that is being shoved through, which will cause you know all sorts of harm to freedom of expression in in the UK. You know, and then final final stop in the whistle top tour is uh, is Brussels, where you know again to an absolutely wrapped um, bunch of Brussels policymakers when then asked about so what are solutions to this. Uh, you know, one of the big things she has to say is is um, more or less towing the Facebook line on on uh, the big directive that's coming through Brussels at the moment, um, the Digital Services um, Act, and and also saying and by the way, guys, interoperability is never going to work. Forget interoperability. So you know, everywhere this PR tour, this this kind of global PR tour for some function of the globe that basically is Washington, London, and Brussels. Everywhere that tour goes, it bas- it says. Do stuff, but not too much. And don't think about structural solutions because they're, you know, hand wave, hand wave, too difficult, won't work, too hard, we don't like them. I mean, it's been really noticeable to me that in the last few weeks of this whole extravaganza, um, Facebook's um, PR responses to it have, have kind of gone down to a murmur. I mean, I hardly hear them saying anything. And why? Partly because, you know, it's, it's a similar view of the world. This is stuff that Facebook is very comfortable hearing. Basically, tweak some of the, you know, pull, pull a couple of the levers you have, but ignore all those big, scary ones about interoperability, competition, antitrust. And, you know, don't do any of that stuff. We don't want structural change. We just want to tweak the business model. And but then, you know, and, the, and that, again, this is all northern hemisphere stuff saying um, we are the center of the universe and our, our laws count and our hurts count you know and our injuries and harms are important but everybody else's don't even come into the picture so this is very interesting and i think that you're absolutely right but there is the other side of all this which i think has happened in this in these past two weeks, is that I had the feeling that every time she was speaking to lawmakers, whether it was the US, the UK, or in Brussels, she was also telling them what they wanted to hear in many ways. So for instance, in the UK, she literally said, you need to ban encryption, uh, knowing very well that the UK government is actually part of the online safety bill. Is There is this huge conversation about encryption. And then she moved into Brussels and she was like, DSA is the perfect solution and it's, you know, and I hope that 
people in the United States and legislators in the United States, better yet, um, would be able to look at Europe because you're setting up a model for regulation. Um, and to me, in, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because what does it, this mean for regulation? It seems like, you know, internet regulation is already pretty messy. It's already a little bit all over the place. Um, I think that we are seeing that some of the things that we used to know or uh, believe that they were given when it comes to regulation, we're seeing them being abandoned. Um, Things like due process, things like expert advice, and all the rest. And suddenly, on top of that now, you have a whistleblower and don't get me wrong, uh, you know, it's very, very important to, to have whistleblowers because this is one way to get that information. But their job is really not to say how regulation should happen, right? Their job is to lay out the facts and the experiences uh, the way they have experienced, uh, experienced them in the, in, within the companies that they work, uh, they used to work for. So what does this mean for the future of internet regulation? I mean, you know, where do you think... How do you think this is going to be used uh, either for the online safety bill in the United Kingdom or for the Digital Services Act in, um, in Brussels in order to be able and justify some of the things that they want to do? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think the whole, you know, Francis Hagen wanting encryption ban thing, I think it was partly the case of poor transcription by the Telegraph newspaper. Um, and, and, and I think she did issue a somewhat clarifying statement on that. Um, but um, but but in broad, I mean, yes, she is absolutely saying, you know, speaking to power in language that power understands, um, and also coming up with fairly middle of the road, um, what are often called nuanced solutions um, to deep structural problems. And you know, if you're a policymaker, probably this is what you want to hear, right? You want to hear that if we just if we just make the platforms do a bit more moderation um, and do it a bit more carefully and put a bit more money into it, then probably most of our problems will be fixed. And we as policymakers will have done a good thing and we will have forced the companies to do stuff. Um, And so, you know, it kind of falls into the here is a problem and here are our tools. And somebody comes along and says, your tools are perfect for this problem. We just need you to use them a little bit. And so and I think that is because you know, again, some of my, my pieces on this have kind of been about how Hagen fits into that, the reasonable person and the prodigal tech row as well. You know, somebody who sounds reasonable, who is speaking in nuanced terms uh, in ways that people with power relate to, um, you know, because it, it's sort of a person of a similar academic and socioeconomic background sitting across from other people with that same background, talking in language that they understand, you know, wearing clothes and having an, uh, you know, a temperament and an affect that they respect, playing by the rules and saying, you don't have to break anything. It's okay. You just need to do a few tweaks. And so, of course, that's a problem because it means that, you know, very explicitly having, and people who come from that background have explicitly take all of the kind of more structural solutions off the table. So, you know, the message becomes don't regulate, um, you know, regulate the regulate the, the Internet. Whereas I think what we're kind of more interested in, um, I, I say we kind of loosely, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this. But I think, you know, you have to regulate the business model. It's not so much, you know, don't regulate the Internet, regulate the companies. Um, now, that's kind of a nice slogan. And I think it's a bit more it's a bit more nuanced than that. But um you know, the problem is the business model that says we will um, extract data, uh, personal data, and we will sell it and we will use it to sell advertising. And this is the only possible way in which we can provide that public good known as Internet. Right. That's nonsense. There are so many other different models for providing the Internet. But that is the one that we have kind of sort of staggered into. Um, none of us chose it. And, and it's a really terrible model. It's having all of these awful, you know, deleterious social and political effects and economic effects because it massively, you know, hoovers up revenues from all sorts of countries around the world and um, concentrates them in a tiny number of American companies um, and a tiny number of American executives and says this is this is normal. This is, you know, we should all have this incredible hierarchical um, value extraction extortion model. Like, that's just such a weird historic anomaly. 
And and I think that the the damage that someone like Hagen does, and I don't, you know, I don't have to, I, I don't think she's a bad person. I don't have to have any feelings about her one way or the other, because I think she's very much from a certain class. And, uh, and I, you know, and from a certain kind of type of person who has spent a couple of decades working in Silicon Valley, like they are, that's the kind of stuff they're going to come up with because it is who they are. Um, but, and for them, you know, they're not people who are capable of thinking in radical terms about, hang on, this is wrong, like right to the core. We need to unravel this and internet differently. So I think the problem with someone like Haugen is that, you know, she sucks up a lot of all the oxygen in the room. Um, and and sort of makes people kind of look, you know, kind of grab at obvious solutions when, um, you know, more difficult but structural solutions are acquired. And also, to be honest, um, you know, I don't think it's all that well known, but things like the Luminate Foundation, you know, have have very explicitly withdrawn funding from, um, you know, um, what do you call it, sort of grass uh, grassroots organisations that they've been funding in the UK. Um, I know people who are out of work who are sacked um, because tens of thousands of pounds has gone away from um, funding, you know, grassroots organizations doing really important stuff about data and inequality in the UK and has been sent to pay a PR company to do a big PR tour. Now, okay, Luminate can fund whoever they like, but I think it's really striking when, you know, it really appears that money is literally going out of the mouths of hungry activists and into well-paid corporate, um, you know, Democrat, um, organizations to do PR and um, for really milquetoast bullshit solutions that are not going to move the dial on anything except, you know, people's careers. That's so depressing. It, it really is. And I want, I do want to come back to that. We'll make sure we come back to that. But putting aside the, the specifics about people and the specifics about how we regulate some of these things for a moment, I want to get into something that you just said, which is kind of this divide that is, you know, in this, this gap that's increasingly occurring between the grassroots folks, the folks who see these as holistic problems that see the solutions as systemic. And this is not to say that that group of people, which I put myself as in part of is is entirely opposed to any kind of content moderation. I think that there are agreements that we can come to around speech policy. I think that there, you know, reasonable people can agree, blah, blah, blah. But it feels like there's a divide between, you know, the kind of those of us who see a lot of this stuff as techno solutionism um, and a lot of, you know, the the issues being around, you know, kind of trying to solve things online in ways that we wouldn't in the real world. And Rebecca McKinnon, our last guest on this podcast, spoke to that um, and kind of spoke to how we need to slow down and think about process. And then on the other side of the aisle are these folks who are looking for kind of quick fixes um, are, you know, see that as the only possible way forward, particularly in the the you know, bizarre legislative context of the United States. And it those are increasingly those with the funding and the power. And I think, you know, I mean, I, um, I feel like I'm not, in a, you know, I'm not in the perfect position to go talking about funders. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't think it's just Luminate. I do see this kind of happening across the board in a way that it wasn't a few years ago. And so I'm just kind of curious to get really both of your takes on this, like where, how do we bridge that gap? And is it is it even possible? Or are we going to have to, you know, find a way to, to organize better on our side? Uh, Constantinus is thinking, so I'm going to jump in there. And um, like consistently, I am seeing that the organizations that are willing to to you know speak honestly and rigorously tend to be membership organizations where you know you have to kind of there's a certain discipline and honesty and rigor that is required because you've got a bunch of members who are engaged with you and are saying no that's nonsense and also no you you are not allowed to take sponsorship from from Google for your you know your annual conference or whoever it is. Um, and, and it's really hard work, and it means we have to spend a lot of our time doing community community organizing. Um, but consistently, um, you know, for a start, I think that's that's good work. You know, it's it's the work of why we're here, um, and also it makes us better at what we do. It makes us have better and more ideas. It makes us be much more plugged into you know the stuff that actually counts for people, um, um, than organizations who are develop dependent on a single donor who made a bunch of money in Silicon Valley and now kind of wants to do a bit of reputation laundering. And can I wait, can I just follow up on that real quick, Constantinos, just to yes, say sure. that like I think that I think you're absolutely right, but I also I also worry that the that model is not possible in a lot of the 
countries where people are working. And I, I've, that's, that's one of the biggest concerns I have is how we bridge that gap. But Constantinos, please jump in here. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing that I wanted to say is that I have the feeling that we're not even talking, talk about it too much, right? I mean, right now, because of Haugen and because actually the three of us know people that have been affected by, uh, by this peer too, we are talking about it. But previously, it was some sort of a common secret that these things were happening, but they were never seeing the light of day. So th- there is something to be said about transparency and there is something to be said about actually talking about it and making sure that you know, people realize that these things are happening and that there are consequences that um, uh, affect people's lives and affect the ability of people and grassroots organizations that are dependent so much on funding to do their their job. And we need to be more vocal, perhaps, uh, with these issues. And we need to call all these things out because otherwise I have the feeling that this is the beginning of a new trend and because that trend seems to be working right in in various circles i think that I, i'm a little bit afraid that we're giving the wrong incentives even to people to whist, to, to blow the whistle at this stage i mean I have to admit, this past two weeks made me feel extremely uncomfortable with the way the conversation has been shaped and the messages that we were sending to other people about the power that whistleblowers might have or might not have, the ability to influence policy in such a profound way that other people that have been doing this for a long, long time. Jillian is one of them talking about content moderation. There have been so many other people that are talking about regulation, including myself and including you, Maria, that have been writing about this for such a long time, yet normally it falls into deaf ears, right? It's a very good thing that we that they read and perhaps they might say, oh, I've, re- I've, I've read this great piece, but when it comes to the point of actual, actually influencing policy, we are not seeing that. And suddenly we just saw that right in front of us, having someone that was saying things that I'm not sure how familiar or expert they were. And you know, going back to the point about interoperability, that is a very, very big statement to make when you have a bunch of experts, academics, research, technologists, talking about this and saying how important it is in content moderation. So, you know, going a little bit, you know, and if I am to ask the question, and I think that you and I, Maria, have discussed this quite uh, a lot, you know, Seeing It Like a State is one of our favorite books by uh, James C. Scott, and it talks about this need of state to create legible st- uh, structures. Do you believe that this is what is happening? Is this... Uh, giving state the ability to pretend that they understand what's going on in order to be able and go and regulate and structure better get the internet the way they want? Yeah, like the Seeing Like a State thing is a fantastic book by an American political anthropologist, James C. Scott. And it's sort of about the idea that um, states, you know, from the 19th century onwards, states have really liked um, policies, be they in agriculture or be they in um you know, land registries, whatever it is, making all the things that we do legible, easy to read, and um, and concentrating power and authority and knowledge in an ever smaller number of hands. And obviously, that is deeply anti-democratic. And and I think now, you know, here we are at the twenty first century, understanding that um, it's also not just seeing like a state, but you know, seeing like a Silicon Valley. So let's concentrate data in the hands of a very small number of organisations. And for sure, those um, you know states and large corporates have very very similar um, agendas, and you know speak the same language to each other. Just as I think a Francis Haugen, you know, speaks a certain kind of management class ease, kind of Harvard Business School ease that people are comfortable in listening to. I think um, the Googles and the Facebooks and you know the European Commission or the um, you know the FT- FCC, FTC. And they they sort of they do kind of tend to approach um, problems in a similar enough way, like let's do a top down solution. Um, Let's ensure that the market is um, 
arranged such that we have a, a small number of players and so that we know who to pick up the phone to. And so most of the data is flowing through a small number of companies with the means and ability and interest to cooperate very, very closely with states to provide that data. And often, you know, at the to the disadvantage or even destruction and harm of, of individuals and their human rights. So for sure, there is, you know, there is a great consolidation of power going on and um, the Internet and the particularly data-driven models of funding the Internet that we've chosen are driving that. Um, but just to come back for a moment to the, you know, what we were talking about, how do we, how do we do this? How do we organize? I do think that when we, you know, when, when our people are doing it really well, it's because we are, um, you know, not just kind of going along with this single hero narrative of the lone whistleblower who single-handedly, you know, manages to exfiltrate the data and change the conversation um, because, you know, they say things we expect them to say. Um, like when real change happens, it happens because of structural change and structural power. And when we are doing our job really well, um, I think we're building coalitions, um, you know, with other tech workers, with people inside tech, not just people who kind of, you know, run out of tech and run to the, to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times um, or the Guardian um, and say, here's my trove of documents, fix things. Um, but people who are working within the tech technology industry and trying to make it better. And, you know, and of course, everyone, that's a push pull in everyone's morality and everyone's career. Like at what point are you helping people to do bad things or maybe changing from within or maybe not? But I think, you know, when I like there are incredibly powerful developments happening, which I think the Hagen phenomenon obscures. And that is the tech worker phenomenon that is going on, particularly within the US, where relatively few workers are unionized and where white collar workers have you know, never felt like that's for that's for them. That that's not you know what computing and computer engineers and data engineers do, and increasingly you know there is a movement often driven by you know women of color and um, for you know in, in the in the leadership sure but but across the um you know the tech tech industry in the U.S. of people organizing and saying no you know we're not going to you know we're we're Google workers we don't think Maven is a good thing we don't want to be we did not join Google to become Department of Defense subcontractors um you know are people and um, refusing to um do the database work that lets the um, immigration and enforcement machine work and so and like those are kind of you know those are people and like for example Jack Paulson is a great is somebody who you know left um Google you know with, with that kind of um, idea in mind. And I know I've mentioned her already, but Ifioma Ozuma, you know, is, is somebody who is working with Jack and a bunch of other people on the tech workers handbook, which is to really empower people who are both leaving, you know, and doing the whistleblowing thing, but also trying to organize to change things, you know, and they have managed to um, have a change in the law in California um, that protects workers who are, be, who are being forced to sign non-disclosure agreements and really, you know, massively disempowered from doing anything when they're pushed out of organizations because they're worried about, you know, getting their, um, you know, their severance and they're worried about health insurance. And so I really do think like, you know, one of the sort of the, the not so secret superpower we have is organizing and, and is building coalitions, you know, building coalitions with unions across labor organizing, you know, helping people in white collar jobs understand that like this stuff affects you. And if you want to change it, you know, you're probably not going to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but you can actually do good things. Um, and, you know, our, you know, across another range of issues, obviously the abuse of data in immigration um, enforcement and the abuse of data in asylum seeking and refugees in those kinds of contexts. Again, you know, making alliances and co building coalitions, sharing knowledge and practice and data and context and you know and energy and goodwill and you know and and the joy in what we do like those are the kind of when we are building those coalitions like that's what we have that is our superpower you know so we're we're kind of able to because tech is important because it's about power and so you know i think when we're doing our stuff right we are kind of building those relationships across silos across industries across people across groups, you know, that's kind of what we're in this for, I think, long term. And I have the feeling that this is what they're afraid of, right? Really? Julia? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm really glad that we went there. I was kind of debating between two questions next, but 
there's a conversation that's been happening a lot in the circles that I'm in lately. And I think it's really interesting that you bring up the kind of the success of the tech industries organizing over the past couple of years, particularly amidst the pandemic, um, because I think that, you know, from from my perspective, a lot of that was able to be successful because of the fact that those folks are so concentrated within the companies that they work in, that they have access to all of these tools um, where they can connect digitally in ways that those of us who are kind of spread around the world and, and often, you know, um, more inclined to use privacy preserving software are kind of struggling to to find that connection during the pandemic. And I think, you know, there was some hope this fall um, at some of the events that I was able to go to in, you know, August, September, October, um, that we would be able to get back to some of those backstage conversations that we've been missing for the past couple of years. Now we're seeing case numbers rise again. And so, you know, kind of situating this in the stage that we're in, in the pandemic, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, you know, what about our current distributed state makes that organizing more difficult and, and maybe even how we can overcome that. Cause I really do feel that disconnect, um, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it is definitely a push and pull um, um, because obviously we're not, you know, we're not gathering physically and we don't get to have all of those kind of offline conversations and, and um, yeah, um, for sure. But at the same time also, you know, these, the kind of hybrid events and, and increasingly going back to online events are pulling in a whole, you know, different um, bunch of people. Um, you know, and part of it is, um, you know, people who are, you know, disabled people, chronically ill people, people who are not living or not, you know, not wealthy enough to go to a lot of the events that, you know, that many of us can. So, you know, there's a whole, whole just layers and swathes of people that are involved potentially that um, haven't been able to be. Um, but also I, I do think the part of the push pull is that people are, you know, now that, I mean, parents, I hope are paying a bit more attention to the surveillance software, um, you know, that their, their children are, you know, using to, to be part of education, like it's it's kind of coming home to a lot of people, you know, our workplace surveillance now in your home, um, you know, surveilling you and your kids that happen to be in the, you know, in the background, um, all of that. I mean, I think to some extent, I think people are a lot more woken up about the fact that this is power and technology is coming into your house um, in ways that you have not chosen, you know, in ways that you don't necessarily have direct power over and that those choices are, are they're political. So, like, it's, it's kind of swings and roundabouts for me. Um, but, um, you know, because I do see in the open rights group, that, you know, where I'm kind of tangentially part of in the UK, um, there's the, just a huge amount of, you know, more people are coming in and kind of interested and concerned about those issues and are able to connect the dots in a way that I don't think people thought about so much before the pandemic, you know. And so I'm kind of a, I don't know that I'm a glass half full person. I try to be. Um, but I do think that people are understanding the political and the power inequalities of technology in a way that they weren't before. I think it's literally coming home to them. So do you think that then the pandemic was a game changer in that sense, in the sense that because most of us, if not all of us, well, the ones that we are privileged enough to have an internet connection at least, because let's not forget that there is still almost half of the population that is still unconnected. And this is, you know, and during the pandemic, this was another massive thing that we were not really talking about, right? We were celebrating the internet as we should and the ability to stay somewhat, you know, to have somewhat uh, a normal life within all these um, uh, scary things that they were happening during the pandemic. However, there was another half, you know, almost 4 billion people that they were not having connections. So, Everything got affected, right? Their economy, the economies, their education, their ability to communicate and interact with other people, even entertain themselves. But, you know, do you think, however, that the fact that we had to spend so much time online made us more aware of some of those things that before the pandemic we were not we were hearing, but somehow we felt that they were not relevant to us, like privacy concerns, like the concentration of power, like um, you know the, the way our data is being used uh, at our expect, expense to benefit these big corporations, do you think that actually there is a shift? And do you also think that this shift is going to continue once and whenever that happens? And if, let's say, we go back to normal? 
Um, I mean, I think that it's probably too early to say um, because you know these these things generally take a long time to work through, and the and issues like that work through in ways that we don't quite expect. Like they always kind of there's always kind of a twistiness to you know we think something happens and people respond in a certain way, and they kind of respond in something that's the right right angle to what we thought. So, um, I do think people, you know, and it's hard when we say people. I mean, who do we mean? We kind of mean that you know the circles we run in or the newspapers we read or or that, but you know. There does seem to be more conversation um, about um, the use and abuse of data and um, data grabs by governments. But of course, at the same time, you know, all of us, all three of us on this, will have, can think of a dozen examples of states using um, this to make a power grab, using the pandemic to, you know, grab lots of health data, um, travel data, you know, passenger locator forms, all of those things, which are kind of necessary in their way, but relatively rarely used for real-time contact tracing so it's it's sort of again almost like a post-september 11th normalizing of a data grab normalizing of a power grab um and so i i don't know i think it's 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 too soon to tell is probably um in terms of what the long-term structural effects of this and data are going to be um for sure it's too soon to tell on well no i think i think we can we can probably confidently predict that that there is greater gathering uh, of data and use of data um, outside of, um, you know, normal context that we used to think it was okay. And, but the effects where it's too soon to tell or what effect that will have on political organizing and political agendas. Oh, where to go next? We've got so many different directions we could go in. We've got time. Um, I do want to come back to something that you said about whistleblowers and support, if that's all right. Um, I know we're kind of jumping around here, um, but I think our audience is uh, well equipped for that. Um, there was an article a few days ago in Politico about some of the backstory with Francis Haugen and the support from Luminate and Reset. And I noticed that one of the the um, critiques was, I, I'm just going to read this person's tweet. This is from Andrew Strait, um, who's at the Ada Lovelace Institute. He criticized the article and said, why should whistleblowers be alone? Keep in mind the exorbitant legal fees, the loss of health care, the loss of friends, support networks, and employment opportunities. I would hope anyone finding themselves in this position receives this support. And I mean, I think we would all agree there. I think you said this already that, you know, whistleblowers are often put in such a precarious position and do require that support to go forward. And yet at the same time, we have seen, you know, a handful of major whistleblowers kind of, I don't want to say, you know, go into things for profit because I don't think that that's really what's happening, but kind of get swept up in this, um, this kind of tour, these giving talks, this weighing in on everything. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do we, like, what do we need to do to go forward to make sure that other whistleblowers are supported without this kind of scenario happening again? Yeah, I say one word, unionize. unionize the hell out of this right that's that's how we support workers when they are in times of trouble and when they have been mistreated by their employers or have been you know are trying to expose things that their employers are doing like that is like we as a society do not need to keep reinventing um things that have already been invented but you know in the kind of the shiny way for white upper middle class people right join a fucking union and support other people in a union and pay your union dues and be supportive you know i mean it's not hard this is like we invented these uh, like 150 180 years ago so yeah you don't have to have special white people unions that have you know um pr donations from really well got foundations in silicon valley like join a fucking union and support people who are on strike it's not hard Sorry, that's it. all I'm going to say. That's going to be my pull quote for for promoting this episode on Twitter. It's just going to be join a fucking union. Let's go forward. Exactly, and I think you know it's clear to the point, and it's really, really registers. So right? nobody's too good to join a union just because you've got a white collar job or you're shiny or you know. I mean, people. Yeah, I don't know. We we fix this as a society, so let's let's kind of double down in the way we we do this collectively. So, and I'm very conscious of time. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm a little bit conscious of time. And and I really want to ask you a a question about one of my 
favorite pieces from you, Maria. And it's sort, you know, it relates to the way we discuss and understand social media. And this is, of course, I am talking about the prodigal tech bro. And anyone who hasn't read that piece must literally go right now online. And Yeah, we'll make sure to get a link in there. Yeah. Um, in there, you say, uh, the prodigal tech bro is a story about tech executives who experience a sort of religious awakening. They suddenly see their former employers as toxic and reinvent themselves as expert experts on taming the tech giants. They were lost and now are found. They are warmly welcomed home to the center of our discourse with invitations to write op-eds for major newspapers, for think tank funding, book deals, and TED Talks. Why do you think they see so much attention? And what is ultimately the consequence of these attentions? I certainly agree with you, uh, you know, in, in all that. But there is also a part of me that says, isn't this awakening better than not having one at all? Yeah, so I think it's, um, so it actually comes from a, from a Bible story um, of the prodigal, the prodigal son. And it's about um, a young man who squanders, who basically asks for his inheritance before his father dies, gets it in a lump sum, goes to a foreign country, squanders it and ends up um, with no money, um, basically feeding, feeding pigs, working as a pig, a swine herd and um, eating the, the food of the pigs and thinking, God, if, if I went home and just became one of my father's servants, I would be doing better than I am now. What a terrible mistake I've made. I've, you know, I've, um, hurt my father, I've hurt my family, I've done terrible wrong things, I'm absolutely the lowest of the low, um, I will go home and try and beg for forgiveness and beg to be allowed to be a servant in my father's house. Um, and I think the prodigal tech bro piece really is not just about why we put, you know, um, uh, plausible looking centrist white men at the center of our discourse, but it's also about the narrative arc, which is in that particular Bible story, the really important part of the story and the hinge around which the story turns is the moment of realization of having done the wrong thing and understanding that, you know, you th this guy in the story has been the golden child. He's, you know, he was born rich, he's ruined it, and now he understands what he has thrown away and he feels terrible remorse and he tries he understands he can't ever make amends for it, but he can at least try in a small way to be a useful part of society. And that is kind of the narrative hinge that is important in that story, because I think in our discourse and in how we've sort of welcomed into the very centre of discourse and the centre of funding and sucking up funding and oxygen from people who have who were like the, the good brother who stayed at home, who did the work all of those years. You know, that's the tech activists who have been out in the field, um, not taking money from the big companies, having a much lower standard of living, having much less status, having a much harder, you know, road to hoe. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, it, it's to me, it's a really good story because it sort of says it's what's missing in the story of the, the prodigal tech bro is the moment where, you know, the guy who worked as Google's lobbyist um, for a decade and then decided he might like a run for Congress um, and, you know, said, oh, actually, Google's a really has done a lot of harm as a company. There's no moment in that story where where that guy goes and I was part of it and I was one of the people who did it. And in fact, I was the public apologist for it. Um, and so I think it's really important, not because we want to have whipping boys or we want people to be unhappy or feel wretched um, or even to punish people. It's not about that. It's simply about understanding that these companies are doing terrible harm and the people who are part of them are part of that harm. And when we say you just come in, tell us all of your, you know, tell us how it was re how it really was inside that company. Give us your lovely groovy documents that tell us actually don't tell us anything you didn't already know. We're sort of saying um, it doesn't matter that you did the wrong thing all those years because we want you to be at the heart of the story now. And, you know, in that piece, I say, like, that's a great way to run a religion, because in religions, you have to have redemption. Um, but also, you kind of have to have the bit where the person says, I fucked up, I'm really sorry. And so, so I think it's important for us culturally to understand that, you know, the person we need at the heart of our discourse is the person who honestly tried to do the right thing all the way along and didn't get all the riches and the status goods um, on all of those things. Um, and, and mostly just because 
that's what most of us are doing. That's what most people in the world do. You know, they try and do the right thing with not very much. Um, but also I think it feeds into this idea that, um, you know, Mark and Cheryl, um, you know, and, and back in the day, Sergey and um, the other guy, um, you know, in, in Google, like that these are the people who we should feel sorry for in this story, or, or at least the, the, the heroes of the story um, with whom we must feel the most sympathy. And, you know, so much of the narrative around Facebook, for example, is, oh, if only Mark knew that damage his company was doing, he would do a much better job in preventing that damage or in, you know, mitigating it somehow. You know, if only Cheryl understood blah, 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 you know, etc. And this is like, this is actually, if you've studied kind of pre- early modern history, it's it's a really common phenomenon. If only the king knew our pain, he would, you know, not make his chancellor squeeze us for all the tax and execute us and take our children away from us. Um, the king knows your pain. The king is living in the palace that was made of your pain. The king is, you know, is the dragon lying on his great pile of gold, counting it and luxuriating in, you know, the treasures that have been created by your suffering. Like, this is not the story about the king being the person whose feelings we have to worry about and whose feelings we should center. So because I kind of work, you know, I write fiction, I work in, you know, um, storytelling and, and all of that stuff. Like, I'm really, I guess I'm really tuned into the, these people are not the heroes of the story. You know, they are not the protagonist. And so as long as we let them continue to be the protagonist, we are telling the wrong story about the wrong people. And of course, we're going to get the wrong outcomes. So that's kind of why the, you know, the, the prodigal tech bro is one of those things that runs and runs, because I think it, it's, it's a nice piece. And I'm glad I wrote it, not particularly because it's tied to the idea of certain individuals, you know, operating in the world, but more because it says, look, this hero narrative we have is nonsense. You know, it makes us focus our energies and our emotion and our care on the wrong people. You know, the people who are doing the harming rather than the people who are harmed. And it takes away attention from slow violence, from structural violence, from real harm that's being done to many people who are not at the center of our attention and care. And that's why I think it's a piece that people liked because it helps to articulate you know, just why we are just looking at the wrong thing. We have the wrong hero, basically. Yeah. 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 And we're so, we're, as a society, we so want heroes. And I think we have to be more attuned to exactly what you just said, to who's been, you know, to who's doing this work and where that, that collaboration and conversation and kind of coalition is happening. Um, we are getting close to the end of time. So I want to ask you two quick questions in succession. I'll throw them out there and I'll let you answer them. So the first one is, um, just wanted to ask you, you know, as a writer, we've been talking a lot about, um, about these, you know, really specific phenomena. But I want to ask you, what else are you working on outside of this, uh, outside of these topics that you'd be excited to share? And then our last question, which we always throw out there to every guest, is what is your favorite internet human moment? So I'll let you, I'll let you have the floor. Okay, I'm going to answer the first one. I'm trying to think about the second one. Um, so in the first one, um, I'm so I write fiction. I'm shopping around a novel at the moment. Um, and uh, so we'll see what happens. More of that. It's a time travel novel. Um, it's about a woman who can write letters back through time to her younger self. So um, it's a lot of fun. And I am also, I, yeah. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's really hard wait. because um, if you read a lot of science fiction, as I do, you understand there's a, there's a whole time loop problem that you get into. So then most people try and fix that with a multiverse solution. And then that doesn't quite work. So anyway, this is kind of a fun well, uh, a story about, you know, how do we live our lives? Like, what's a moral life? Um, like, what should we do? Who should we help? All of those kind of things. Anyway, so that's kind of a thing. Also, I'm just writing a story. It's kind of a longish short story. It's probably going to end up about 8,000 words. And it is about um, imagining a world without rape. And it is basically about what would happen if um, tomorrow morning uh, people who had committed rape uh burned what if they just spontaneously combusted and that went on happening what if rape became impossible in our world um how would we feel what would we do what would our governments be like because so much of our political order is propped up on this idea of the the threat of violence and also the generally quite empty promise to protect us from the threat of violence so um 
so yeah, it's, it's kind of about that. It's it's a big one. I'm I'm going to try and bring that one home. It's a I'm not sure if I've got the right or any chops, but we shall see. Um, and then the third thing I'm working on is um, a, a book proposal with a fantastic internet human. Actually, maybe that's going to be okay. Segue. Um, so uh, about <laughs> six or eight months ago, uh, an internet human who I um, knew only a little bit via Twitter, um, a guy called Robin Bergeon, um, who's a fantastic Frenchman who works for the New York Times. Um, I knew that he also liked a book that we'd mentioned on this podcast, um, which is James C. Scott, Seeing Like a State. So many of pe other people in our world like this book. It's almost a little scary how many do. Um, yeah. Anyway, Seeing Like a State, Monoculture, Intellectual Monoculture. But uh, I, sent, I sent Robin a message saying, hey, I... Um, have this idea for a book. It's basically like seeing like a state book for internet infrastructure. What do you think? Do you want to, um, could we talk about this? Because I just see this as something that you and I, who don't know each other, should write together. <laughs> and he messaged back within about 90 seconds saying, yes, I've been thinking about this too. We must think about this. So we're re working on this thing. It's provisionally titled Rewilding the Internet. And um, we're going to see if we can get some, if we can write a, finish writing a proper proposal and uh, get somebody to, um, to, to buy this book so we can write it. So that's kind of what's going on. So that is really cool, Internet Human, because Robin's amazing. He does fantastic data stuff. He's come up through W3C. Um, he's just he's just read everything as well. He's read like his Bourdieu. He's read you know French sociologists, American political theorists, everything, and he just thinks about this stuff day to day and how we make a better internet. So yeah, so our whole thing, sorry, is about how we um, just kind of try and deliver a better set of metaphors and structure of feeling to people who are coming up in an internet now where that internet is kind of more like a plantation than a wild forest, like it's a really monocultural kind of place. And we're trying to just kind of, kind of, I guess, almost like throw this um, bundle of rags over the barricades and inside that bundle of rags is a new, uh, a new and also old way of thinking and feeling about the internet as something that is, um, you know, wild and um, variegated and unpredictable and not just basically a set of skyscrapers that are owned by a tiny number of companies so we're trying to it's a structure feeling and a way to imagine the internet that we could actually choose so we'll see it's a big deal we're going to try and pull it off I love it. I, and I, I love it too. I, yeah. And I, I, I also know Robin and I actually have met him also through Twitter. I mean, it's, you know, Jillian, you really need to follow Robin if you don't. And most probably I will even try to get him uh, on it. Chat, Oh, you must uh, try and get him on this here, podcast. Uh, on this podcast. Um, Maria, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I have the privilege of calling you a friend. So you and I have been having these conversations uh, often. Thank you so very much for agreeing to do this and having a chat with us. Thank Jillian. you so much. Wonderful. Yeah. Jillian, I absolutely, as you know, I absolutely adore your book. I love both <laughs> of you. I think you're brilliant humans. Thank you both so much for having me on. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us and for being a, an internet, a human of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Maria.